For almost 40 years, Ceres Organics has been at the forefront of the organic movement. Their vision of an organic and accessible food system has become their mantra, which means they work with organic producers around the world to create an entirely organic food range, from delicious snacks to household staples. Next time you're shopping organic, look for Ceres Organics at your local supermarket. Hi, thanks for being with us on the Dumbo Feather podcast, where we share stories and conversations of people building a hopeful future. On this episode, we have unlearner, uneducator Manish Jain. Manish is deeply connected to regenerating our diverse local knowledge systems and cultural imaginations. He's one of the leading voices on the planet for de-schooling our lives and co-founded some of the most innovative educational experiments in the world including the Swaraj University, India's first university dedicated to regenerating local cultures, economies and ecologies. The interview was held by Alex Jensen from Local Futures and was part of our localising issue of Dumbo Feather magazine. I was born in India and when I was three years old, I was uh, kidnapped by the American dream and taken to the United States by my parents to pursue the American dream. They were also captivated by it and uh, thought it would be the best thing for me also to to give me the best opportunities and most happiness in life. And so when I say American dream, really the dream that having more and more convenience, more and more comfort, more and more efficiency, more mobility, more money, obviously, would give one more happiness, more satisfaction in life. So I grew up in Chicago, in suburbs of Chicago. And even in my childhood, was started living the American dream. For me, it was lots of hours in shopping malls and playing video games and eating lots of junk food to try to, in a sense, fit in. So as a person of Indian origin, didn't quite ever fit. So I did all these things to try to fit and I realized very quickly on the game was the more you kind of acted like the white man and followed what they were doing, the better off you would be in this game. Be white, act white. But since I was a childhood, there was also another stream, which was personally, I was questioning the education system a lot. And supposedly it was my parents had gone there with the idea that even they had gone to study there for their graduate work. And the idea was the system was supposed to be one of the best in the world for people. But when I was a child, I thought about questioning many things within the education system, like the idea of competition. You know, there always was resistant to being forced to compete against my friends for things and felt very, whenever I had made the mistake of kind of winning certain things, I felt very disconnected from my friends and didn't really find a lot of happiness in it. And I went to a public school, a government school there, and was always feeling that never very engaged by being in the class. But I felt I was really learning more outside of the class and the inside the class stuff, all the textbooks and the homework. And that was actually the real extracurricular. So I've had questions about education, even personally, since I was a And then I had a sense since I was a kid also to serve the world. And so I started looking on how I could really be of service. 
And a lot of my college years, was, I was involved in a lot of activist movements and student politics and things like that. And then when I was thinking about what to do, you know, get a, get a corporate job and earn some money and understand the system, maybe you can change it, make it more equitable and things. So I ended up on Wall Street in New York, a company called Morgan Stanley, and worked that time on a lot of privatizations in the telecom industry. So in the global south, so a lot of American telecom companies wanted to buy up different things, so they were our clients. So initially I thought, oh, we're really helping to improve services and give people better systems and all of that. And I realized uh, fairly quickly that, no, this was actually really the game was designed to steal the public wealth and I also started understanding how the system is actually you know it's built on this theory of trickle down and make the rich people richer and it eventually come down and it's that's I think the moral basis of it and that's also the uh, way it's actually designed but we're told it's designed but it's actually quite the opposite that it, things don't really trickle down they end up trickling up quite a bit and not even trickling up, gushing up. So I saw this happening and how the design was for that. And so it disgusted me quite a bit. <laughs> and I got became quickly disillusioned with it. And also uh, one other thing happened to me was when I was there, I was 22 years old, and I had a little, um, you could say, a baby enlightenment, a very tiny <laughs> one, in the sense of I had everything was there, like five-star lifestyle of, you know, what everyone aspires for in the American dream, Armani suits and five-star hotels and fancy parties and supermodels and everything. I don't know if you saw Wolf of Wall Street. It was a bit like uh, so I was a baby wolf. In a sense. <laughs> so that um, one day I just kind of, I had done it for about a year. And then one day I just woke up and I was like, that's it. I lost all interest in it, actually. This is what most people sadly aspire most of their life to and People who even had been in investment banking for 20 years were still doing the same thing, running after this stuff. And I don't know, I think it was a great gift that I was given at age 23 to kind of realize it's, it doesn't really give you happiness and, uh, and there's hopefully more to life. So I started a search of what that could be. And then I talked to my friends again, you know, I want to get out of this. What can I do to serve? And they all said, oh, maybe you should become an academic. So I ended up at Harvard and um, was going to do a PhD there. And I was there, I started questioning a lot of the role of academia and the way we're trained to look at things. And one of the things that really stuck out for me was talking about uh, the global south. Again, all of the discussion was around the poor and the illiterate and how incapable they were of solving other problems and they needed all this help from the global system to bring them out of their misery and all of that. And then I luckily had this other set of experiences, other world that I was part of, which was my grandmother's world of my village in India, which we would visit from time to time when I was growing up. Both my grandmothers, they never went to school. They were illiterate, so-called illiterate, and they were... You know, I didn't see them making all the problems in the world. I actually saw them playing very important, generous, caring roles in, in the family and in the community we lived in. And they're also living very simply, sustainably. So 
started really questioning such kinds of discourses and frameworks from academia. So I decided to leave there and I thought that, you know, I should actually more interested in working on changing the system than just studying what was wrong with it. And I didn't really think that those changes were significant when it happened from sitting there in Harvard. So I left and then I talked to my friends what I should do. And then it was a question of suggestion came, why don't you join, you know, the UN? That's where you can best serve it. So I ended up working then with World Bank, with UNESCO, with UNICEF, UNDP for several years. And there are several things I started questioning much more deeply than the development model, like a few aspects of it. One being the feeling that even there at that time, there was some discourse around participatory development. I felt it was really coming in a very Western, that everyone should become like the West. That was the reference point for everything that how development would be done. So we were trying to fit this onto very diverse communities, cultures, situations, but trying to tell everyone at the end of the day, that's where you need to end up. So I started questioning that. And also even the role of experts, you know, who would be told to fly into a place, spend four or five days there, interview people, and then be asked to come up with a plan of action for their countries and things, which was an absolutely, you know, stupid exercise. I remember I was on one team and hosting a project in Ethiopia and we had a bunch of experts and consultants come and they had submitted their reports and a few of them had just copy pasted from other countries and they forgot to change some of the, the names and that. So, <laughs> so this idea of trying to force everyone to do a certain trajectory and path and particularly in education, uh, I felt that this model of schooling, factory schooling, which was, I never was happy with really growing up in the U.S. and was being imposed on all these other places, which had their own, you know, spiritual traditions, intellectual traditions, traditions, knowledge systems, and with no regard for those things. So there's a term that was used and is still being used, which is called first-generation learners. So calling mm-hmm. people to school for the first time, that this first time in their life and their history that they've learned anything because of the school has come. As and though they had no history of their own. They had no other kind of knowledge or learning or anything that was going on in the past. So I found it to be so, you know, devastating and humiliating to people who call them. And yet very few people wanted to question it. Those who did, they'd say, okay, we agree, but there's no alternative. I found that a lot of the development discourse was also steeped in this idea that, of Tina that there is no alternative to uh, the dominant game. The point in me, I really, I think, broke my faith in that system was there was a report that came out at that time from USAID that for every $1 of aid that the U.S. government gives, they earn $10 in profit back. Hmm. And then I started researching and seeing, understand that, that profit was in terms of, you know, you have to hire American consultants, American, buy from American, you know, construction companies, American textbook publishers, American computer sales, and all of that stuff you have to buy them. So there's a lot of, that was like really, really disgusting and disappointing to that I resigned from USA to do but then, Yeah. Then was looking, thought the UN was slight, was better, but realized that they're also part of the similar games and very deeply interwoven and interconnected with the global economy. At age 28, people were saying, you know, 
we agree somewhat with what you're raising, but uh, what's the alternative? So I didn't have anything sitting in UNESCO at that time. I was like, I can see it. I need to really find some alternative. Very clearly, a deep part of this problem is by the way that's thinking. So the kind of modern, urban, industrial, military, Western mind which I grew up with also and which I saw being imposed on people through the schooling system. This way of thinking about the world was something very deeply flawed and very fragmented, very scarcity, fear-driven way that people were, we were all trained to be and live in the world. So I started saying that we need to find other visions of what life is or what purpose of life is beyond the American dream, how we relate to, you know, our land, our community. I was meeting a lot of thinkers who were talking about the possibility of the systems that we had collapsing. And then I realized, you know, I didn't know how to really do anything except write a PowerPoint presentations and Excel sheets and things. And so <laughs> I thought I should start to learn how to grow my own food and make my own clothes and build my own house, things like that. So you started to see the difference between a phantom money economy and a real economy. Yes. And I mean, I decided that, also at that time I met my wife and I was quite clear by that point about the devastating impact of factory schooling on human beings and on human relationships and connecting community. My wife and I, before we got married, we discussed extensively we wouldn't send our children to school. Uh, that became a big thought of mine also, that what kind of other spaces of learning can actually create for, for myself yeah. and for, uh, for my wife and for children and also what's the spaces of... I thought that there was a lot of conditioning that this... American dream and the lifestyle and the thought behind it had created, felt the need for a deep unlearning journey. So we ended up back in India and mm -hmm. we basically started living with my uh, grandparents and we joined my grandmother's university at that time for our mm -hmm. unlearning. We started seeing that there's a whole different way to approach life from very small things like the whole... Growing up, I never questioned the concept of waste, for example. You know, it was mm -hmm. just part of them. And you think you're a good citizen for throwing things into the garbage can and things that you've done your part. And then actually being with my grandmother, understanding in her conception of the world, there's no such thing as waste as an idea even. Mm -hmm. For most people living in rural areas at, at the time, the, there was really... No idea of waste for most people. So can I ask right there, yeah. it seems like the system that you grew up with in the U.S., the so-called American dream that you started to become disillusioned with, uh, was yeah. in many ways based on this sort of mystification of life, right? And this waste issue makes me think about that because in a place, the so-called highly developed society like the U.S., something like waste is um, produced at a volume per capita that exceeds pretty much anywhere in the world, and it's considered the pinnacle of development and so on. And yet, 
that's only by this removal of it from the consciousness, right, through these highly technical systems. And so it's kind of an organized system of mystification, which separates us from the actual sources of our things and the consequences of our actions. And that's linked in, wouldn't you say, to this whole system of learning. It's like, you know, one way to think about it is like, say, factory schooling. One way is to think about an assembly line production process. So in part of the assembly line, you never look at the whole system. You just do your little bit. And so Mm -hmm. I think that fragmented, compartmentalized way of thinking is something that we really inherit from the system. So most of us don't really grow up asking, you know, the shirt that I'm wearing, where did it come from? Or how was it made? Or who made it? Or what were the conditions it was made? Or what was the production process? What was the impact of that on the environment? Most of the time, most people don't ask those questions. If they do, it's kind of a little academic exercise. Not so many people really know all of the things. So where does my food come from? Where does my garbage go? Where's the dump site? You know, so a lot of those things, most of us are not really given the space in the education system to ask those kinds of questions in a deeper way. I think we don't go and say, oh, the coal that is being taken from tribal communities is killing it, or this nuclear power plant is really, we don't really do what we can do. Even worse than that, wouldn't you say it's actually simply preparing people to be functionaries? in the system that administers all of those systems and, and relationships. Yes, I think that's consciously great. I mean, there's two sides. One is the people to serve the system and administer it, as you're saying, and without asking too many questions about what's actually happening and what are the costs of running the system. And so a whole set of stories and ideologies are created to justify, like I mentioned earlier, like trickle-down to justify that the system runs. And, you know, this ideology of growth, continuous growth needs to be part of that trickle-down narrative without that poor will suffer. And I think, you know, in India and many other countries of the global south, I've seen, you know, elites using this argument, you know, to kind of morally justify this unlimited growth narrative. Like, you know, the poor will suffer if we stop doing this, you know, it's like, what are you actually doing? You're stealing from nature, from communities, from people. You have an organized system of centralized theft and violent destruction. And yet you say, we're doing all of this on the behalf of these poor people. Without us, they'll all die, you know? Well, similarly, Westerners are enjoined to consume because if they don't, you know, it might threaten people's livelihoods. Like, as though the idea that we need to consume in order to provide jobs for people in sweatshops or something. So there's a whole set of, I would say, uh, dogmas that have been created around that, which we need to unravel for sure. And the other side is obviously this feeling of manufacturing, this feeling of emptiness, of emptiness, of insecurity, of inferiority. Yeah, that disconnection from your deeper self, I think, so that you become a very good, stupid consumer. That's the other side of the equation is that for growth to happen, you need a lot of unhappy people who keep thinking that their happiness will come from consuming more and more stuff. 
So this brings up the notion for me of the monoculture of the mind or the colonization of the imaginary. Can you talk a little bit more about how this globalized and standardized knowledge system from institutionalized schooling and education is linked in so tightly to globalized capitalist economy and the growth imperative? Yeah, there's multiple levels on which this is operating. The first level is really bringing young people into, say, the bubble of the textbook world in the classroom, which starts to really disconnect them from their local contexts, the place, the mountains, the rivers, the fields, the food, the whole local life processes get put into actually this category of extra and not essential. And what's essential is what's on the textbook and what's going to be in the exam. And I've seen that with so many kids that their own questioning process, their own exploration is, you know, I even remember when I was a kid growing up, we were given some interesting reading maybe by a teacher who cared. And I would remember like even myself or others and saying, is this going to be on the exam or not? Are we going to be fit for this? And then, you know, and then say, oh, well, then forget it. I'm not going to read this. I'm not going to do this if it's not on the exam. So I think that this flattening of our world, one of my friends was just very interesting. Like we're being conditioned in a sense to see the world through Microsoft products. It has to fit in a PowerPoint. And that's what reality becomes, not connected realities, but whatever can fit in these kind of documents. And but reflect on it, they understand that these documents cannot capture life, these softwares. You know, I remember one of my neighbors, the kid, talking to him, and he's like, you know, we're studying about water conservation in our class. And I'm like, well, that's nice. Do you guys want to see some conservation projects? I can show you. We can go and work a volunteer on something. And he's like, no, 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 I don't have time for that. I started the exam, too. So. <laughs> Some people would say, well, no, these topics are in the education system, but I think it goes much deeper that, you know, the kind of value system or prioritization system, what's important, gets skewed by the education system. So, again, like have nowadays in Delhi, they talk a lot about the happiness curriculum. So this is, a, you know, a couple of classes a week around happiness you know, people will have that, but they won't have time to spend with their grandparents or to actually do something to, you know, help their neighbors or something like that because they're so busy with spreading happiness. Rather than living it. Exactly. So basically you're saying we're being and kids are being, especially not just in India, but I think you would agree everywhere, alienated by this system from our own selves, our own bodies, our own imaginations, our communities, our local sources of potential wisdom and knowledge, and also our local environments. Yeah? Yep. So the other side, we're being, as I said, indoctrinated into this frame that around our sense of being is validated when we wear certain brands. We identify with certain products. We're able to take selfies in exotic places. We've grown up in India with everything in the U.S. is superior and everything we have is inferior. That model is also part of this game. So we end up 
Though, you know, and we've accepted a position where we've been told, well, India is poor and developing and the model is there. And this has been my own journey in the last 20 years is to rediscover the inherent wealth that is within communities at the grassroots. And whereas like my formal training told me they were poor and backwards and uncivilized and lacking, over the last 20 years, I've just reconnected myself to that wealth and been so enriched by it. And the sense of generosity and care and wisdom and love and imagination that exists in grassroots communities and exists among people who have gone to school for or not gone to school or have gone only for very limited amounts of a few years in their life. It's incredible the kind of relationships and resources and creativity that exists. I think what schooling does is actually disconnects us. And I don't think it's only limited to India. I think that every country in the world, every country in the global south, they have tremendous amounts of resources in the grassroots communities. And not just physical, but intellectual and social resources are there. So why don't we pivot now to talking about what experiments and alternatives you became involved in, helped to to seed, helped to nourish when you came back to India and start, you know, as part of your journey of healing from the American dream. And just describe a few of them for us, if you don't mind, like the Swaraj University, like Shikshantar, learning societies, etc. And then later, I want you to talk about the Ecoversities Network, and how there are similar such things going on all over the world. When we came back, I told you that my wife and I, we started living with my grandmother. We also set up a learning center called Shikshantar. The subject of that was the People's Institute for Rethinking Education and Development. So we started with this search, and luckily there was a whole tradition of thinkers in India, like Gandhi and Tagore, who had questioning the development model. They had been questioning the development models and even the education model that we had had. Uh, one was to start to more deeply and trying to understand their critiques and to reconnect ourselves to this lineage of things. The other thing that we felt was there's a lot of people who were living alternative models at the grassroots and they were part of culture, they were part of yeah, things that they were never really colonized or part of the system, but there were alternative, like, for example, with the area of alternative healing, massive visions around that, not only in Ayurveda, but grassroots communities had their own traditions as well. So we started to kind of connect to these things, and both of these, this kind of big thinkers and also these folks, grassroots communities, traditions, they started to make us much more aware of our own conditioning. And so what Shikshantar, we realized actually the first work was actually we started talking about as a center for unlearning. So that we started to actually dismantle within ourselves and between us several of the dominant frames of reference for what is a good life, what is development. And so Gandhi talked a lot about the idea of Swaraj which mm -hmm. literally means rule over the self. I like to talk about it as expansion and harmony of the self. So I started going and exploring, and not only just intellectually, but by meeting people, experimenting. So Shikshantar then also became a space for lived experiments. 
So how do we actually start to do that? So first thing we started there was starting to learn how to grow our own food. And we learned the charka of how to make our own bread and cloth. And we started learning a lot of traditional recipes, also cooking. And we started learning alternative healing methodology. So it became a space for us to connect to these things and also to start experimenting with them in our own lives. So our question in Shikshanta became, how do we live Swaraj in our own lives and in this kind of in the modern urban world. We've been experimenting with that for 20 years. And then out of that, a lot of young people started joining. A lot of families started connecting to us. And a lot of people actually who had been failed by schools. One of the worst crimes of this education system is almost 80% of people are labeled as uneducated, as dropouts, and they don't really see any future for themselves. Sorry, just to interrupt. And also, you know, I've heard so often in villages in Ladakh from elders who didn't go through the system that I don't know anything, you know, I'm a dumb donkey or such. Yes, yes. And this is really important because it creates and reinforces a kind of knowledge hierarchy, you know, where people who go to school think they know a lot more than people who have not been to school. And It was interesting. I can share a story around that. People were saying, well, you don't want kids to go to school. You want them to remain goat herders and to have opportunities. And for a while, I was feeling really bad about that. I was like, no, I don't want anyone not to have opportunities. And I don't want to stop their learning at all. But then when I decided to, I went on an unlearning journey where I spend like a week with these goat herding children every day. What do they do? And actually, I realized they have phenomenal knowledge about their local ecosystems, like which plants you can eat, which you can't. If the goat Mm -hmm. gets injured, which plants you can use to heal them, what are the best areas for grazing, how to take care of the ecosystem, where water resources are. They knew everything about their local ecosystem. So I was like dumbfounded. I was like, we only know how to spell G-O-A-T, but they know everything about the life of a goat and and the (laughs) ecosystem. And their connection to it. Like, who has the real knowledge? They have the real knowledge. We're just thinking that we know something because we can point to a picture of a goat and spell this word, you know? Yeah. So I feel like that this knowledge hierarchy gets created where both people who've gone to school think they know, and people who haven't gone to school or failed school start to feel that they're inferior, they don't know. And they, yeah. the, the real things they know, they start to devalue those things, for sure. The living world is characterized by diversity, huge radical diversity. And it seems to me what you're saying and what, you know, one of your main messages, too, has been one of the tragedies of this institutional education system, which includes the media, no doubt, is in creating an epidemic of ignorance about that diversity. And that cripples communities' abilities to live, especially when, as we're seeing today, these you know, systems that we, we thought were so durable uh, yeah. are suddenly exposed as being very brittle and very vulnerable. And all of a sudden, that local knowledge of living that's connected to the local diversity of the place, its value becomes so apparent. Yeah, I can give a couple of examples like that. So I live in Rajasthan, where a big part of the state is desert. Most valuable thing is water. 
can show, I've been amazed the kind of traditional water harvesting techniques and systems that people had developed. And it wasn't just like thousands of years ago, people had developed all kinds of harvesting conservation systems. And those systems, many of them are still functioning and working today. So that diversity of people, you know, people are water engineers. Actually, what's happened in the last 50, 60 years in India is a lot of these traditional systems were destroyed by educated people, actually. So we have... <laughs> You know, because they didn't understand how they worked and uh, they thought that, you know, they had learned something in uh, their textbooks about, you know, how centralized water systems should be created and all of that, like big dams. But so many small scale and diverse, there's so many different ways that people are, have been harvesting and taking care of their water. I mean, I'm just mind boggled by the diversity of ways, the beauty of the systems that they created, the simplicity of them, the elegance of them. Uh, and this they had done with all, without any modern technologies, uh, these kinds of systems were created, you know. So one of the most striking examples is a very good common friend of ours, Debal, Debal Dave, who yes. yes. phenomenal work with seed, seed diversity. We were together recently and he was telling me, you know, the kind of seed diversity that we had. And so we were talking about rice. And I mean, how many varieties of rice did we used to have in India? So I don't know. I, I said, I know about three, four varieties. You know, there's like basmati rice and red rice. And and, he, and then he's like, no, take a guess. So I said, I don't know, uh, maybe a few hundred. And uh he went and he told me there were more than 114,000 documented varieties of rice that used to exist in India. And the monoculture of the mind has made it, brought us to a situation where there's now less than 7,000 varieties uh, left in our country. And most of these are also on the verge of extinction. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that that mindset that is, you know, and, and if we... We, luckily, we haven't gone for uh, GM rice in India, but, you know, that would then bring the varieties down to one or two, actually. And this is, so there, it's almost a sickness of mind, which says that, you know, there has to be one way or this is the only way or is unable to actually see the kind of diversity that exists and value it. And all of that diversity has really been done in partnership with the natural world. That's the most amazing thing. It's, yeah. You know, and every place, you know, if the water is different, it recognizes. Um, there's a saying here in Rajasthan that every four kilometers, the water changes. And they, every eight kilometers, the language changes. So that's the kind of diversity that had in this place. And every system was built around that, you know, um, from the economic system to the governance systems were actually... Uh, to all of the kind of technologies even that were created were built on this. One other, one other thing that I also wanted to add was the diversity in terms of artisans. Artisans mm -hmm. and a bunch of grassroots sustainable technologies that have been generated over thousands of years. And one, and particularly where I am in Rajasthan, you know, they there's a, one of the most amazing technologies has been the clay pot for drinking cold water. You know, it gets up to 50 degrees Celsius where I am at. So cold water is a super valuable thing for people. 
and that uh, we could create sustainable clay pots, ecologically sustainable and affordable to every single person in the community, regardless of their economic background. Everybody could have access to this kind of water. So phenomenal kind of things and across different fields of uh, artisans. And what's happening with the education system is that so many children are ashamed of their parents, whether they're artisans or whether they're farmers. And this kind of shame has been something that they don't want to actually can, uh, continue those traditions, learn those traditions, evolve those traditions and, and whatnot. So I've yeah. worked with a lot of young people in Shikshantra who come from these different traditions and we've tried to, one of the things again is to unlearn the shame around that and try to see the beauty and the power that are in these different uh, traditional knowledge systems and help young people reconnect to them. They may not do it as their career or their profession, but to see that this is a super valuable knowledge, not only that gives you a real skill for life, but connects you to your ancestors and to your place and to deeper deeper sense of the culture here. So that's another thing. So Shikshantar has been doing a lot of experiments. We've been supporting also a lot of my daughter. I have a 17-year, 18-year-old daughter now. She's never gone to school. So Shikshantar became a space unschoolers, free learners, school dropouts to come and uh, have a community grow up. So there is a very strong, I think, discussion these days around the world around homeschooling and Schooling meaning that homeschooling meaning that uh, people follow they're at home but they follow the uh, formal syllabuses of schools and unschooling uh, meaning that we just follow uh, the interests of the learners the needs of the community. So one thing right. that we real building a community is the most important thing. So we didn't want to perpetuate the kind of uh, hyper individualism that comes in modern industrial urban society but we wanted to really create a space where people of different ages could come together and also where the center could be connected to a lot of different things that are happening around the city and nearby rural areas as well so we have been working on that and then out of that we had a a need that a lot of young people uh, were coming to Shikshantar, they felt they would like to be, they were wondering whether they should try to go back to school and we asked them why and they said we were, I mean, not so much in Udaipur, but young people from around the country, they said we're missing a sense of community. So mm -hmm. and that was particularly at the level of higher education. So we decided to create an alternative university called Swaraj University, and we called it uh, university because we also wanted to challenge many of the frameworks of the university system. We think the university has been promoting what we call deadlyhoods, and that most of the work that you learn in the university is geared around somehow destroying life on the planet. Most of the professions, careers are either directly destroying or hiding the destruction or making money off the destruction. That's the vast majority of careers that people learn from going to the university. And so we wanted to explore the, how one is how um, 
young people could reconnect to themselves and their communities. They could also find alternative livelihoods, what we call a kind of a livelihoods that make you and your community and your ecosystems uh, regenerate and come alive. And we wanted to show that there was a different way of learning that wasn't bound in the classroom and exams, but actually uh, inviting a much deeper engagement with people who are around you, people engaging with all different kinds of knowledge systems, people who are trying to uh, uh, choose a different lifestyle, which wasn't built on consumerism and trying to dominate and exploit other people. So Waraj has been a place, a two-year program for people to come and really try to evolve in what we call self-designed learning. They get to really actively contribute to de designing their two-year learning program. Can you describe some of, maybe a couple of examples of the, well, some of the it? students? Yeah, like what yeah. transformations have you seen? Um, what effects and what have yeah. people gone on to do? Three of the most beautiful things I've seen in terms of transformations. The one is some of the young people finding a space to accept themselves. It's very strange. People who are both called losers in the system or failures had very low self-esteem and they joined Swaraj. And also people who are so-called winners in the system. They also had a quite a strong inner critic and low low self-esteem. I mean, we've had students who have been failed 10th grade, and we've also had people who have done engineering degrees, you know, or even studied abroad. One thing that we've seen is having two years, space where people can really learn to accept themselves and appreciate themselves and stop always comparing themselves to others, trying to be somebody that society has thrust upon them, you know, some some vision of being successful or being happy or whatever, that all these images, they've had a space to kind of really deconstruct some of those things and find out really some things which they can accept themselves more deeply. And that very interestingly has given the, their own sense of consumerism and buying brands, given rise to a different kind of vision of all of that and a kind of letting go of much of that and much stronger sense of voluntary simplicity. The second, I think, is that acceptance of self has come with a lot of people. I've found that their relationships and their families was quite strained. Remember, we had one person, you know, on surface, she looked very all put together and talented and all that. And then we find out that she hasn't spoken to her father for like seven years. They don't talk at all. And so a lot of these relationships uh, that have been strained and we don't have time for People in Swaraj, when they're in Swaraj, they have given attention to those and tried to heal those. Particularly a lot of really strained relationships with parents and siblings, I think. And I think that's really important because it starts to then rebuild a sense of uh, safety net and a, secure, a sense of groundedness and connectedness also for young people. The third transformation I think has been interesting is a more of an opening up of people to being willing to try to look at things from different perspectives, trying to ask more questions, trying to go and experience things for themselves rather than just taking things they've heard read in the media or in their textbooks as the truth. Gandhi's autobiography, My Experiments of Truth, has been a very important title for us all. And life is a space for us to really try to conduct our own experiments with understanding truth and 
getting to the deeper meaning of life and things. Well, that's super inspiring. And uh, I know that, you know, you haven't just limited this to Dipor. You've also been involved creating a network around yeah. similar initiatives, both with, you know, across India with the multiversities, as well as globally with ecoversities. Maybe in the last couple of minutes we have here, you could just describe those initiatives and what you're seeing, yeah, more broadly. Part of the whole idea of ecoversity is that we need to start to reclaim our own frameworks, our own definitions, our own ways of storytelling, our own ways of how we create knowledge and share that. And it's already happening. It's been happening. And so now I think there's a resurgence of people who are understanding and wanting to reclaim these spaces and regenerate different kinds of learning spaces uh, for themselves and for young people. And this movement is happening right now. We have more than a 150 members in 40 countries in the Ecoversities Alliance. We've been meeting every year regularly and supporting a lot of exchanges between these projects. And we've been also supporting lots of people who want to start up their own universities. And I think the other thing is also, you know, there's space friends who are creating the forest university or the ocean university or the river university. And the idea, I think, that's fundamental is in that is that we're also shifting the locus of knowledge, and we're also shifting even who the guru is. So the idea is, can the forest be the guru, or can the river be the guru, or can the ocean and all the underwater life be the guru? Or So I think that actually starts to bring us out of a lot of the ecoverses, I think, are trying to also bring us out of the anthropocentric narratives that we've been conditioned on. Yeah, so that's a little bit of what's happening in that. And But I think it's quite amazing the diversity of Again, we're not trying to have one centralized model or franchise or anything like that. It's each community. And so there's, you know, there's one project in Brazil that I've been connected called University of the Quebradas. So the favelas are starting to regenerate and understand they have a lot of knowledge. And that, you know, the conversations have been something like the modern university has not really been able to help them in dealing with a range of diverse problems they have, whether it's with the drug dealers or with water harvesting problems or with, you know, violence and whatnot. So people in communities are finding their own solutions, their own knowledge to how to deal with these. That, I think, is a very exciting thing, is that as we are looking to create more alternatives in the world, we have to have alternative centers of knowledge production and sharing. And those exist, the idea is to help name them and connect them and support them. You can learn more about Local Futures and the incredible people involved in the localizing movement, like Manish, over at localfutures.org. Thanks to our editing guns, Cheshire Audio and Yaga, and thank you for tuning in. We are currently putting the finishing touches on our March issue of Dumbo Feather magazine, all about systems change and how we can create rapid, wide-scale mobilization in the midst of the climate crisis. We have many exciting things to share with you in that, so stay tuned for more. Bye for now. Series Organics, at the forefront of the organic movement for nearly 40 years. Learn more at seriesorganics.com.au.